0: All right, Alexander, let's talk about what is happening in Ukraine. We have the row between Zaluzhny and Zelensky, and we have the situation on the front lines. But uh, we also have the EU pledging more money, more ammunition, and the United States divided about Project Ukraine. With, uh, with some Republican lawmakers insisting that not another dime goes to Project Ukraine until there is some transparency and some accountability. And of course, the priority right now with many lawmakers in the United States is the war in Israel. So let's, uh, let's start, I guess, with uh, Zeluzhny and Zelensky, maybe. Yeah absolutely let's let's talk about
1: this because of course yesterday was a day of swirling reports and rumors about power struggles and generals being sacked and other generals being under investigation so you know there were reports and there were reports from pretty you know authoritative figures um, you know members of the Uh, Ukrainian parliament were coming forward and saying that three generals, including General Tarnaski, who is the overall commander of Ukrainian forces in southern Ukraine, the general, in other words, who has been uh, conducting the main part of the offensive. You remember the summer offensive? He was the general conducting the summer offensive against the Russians in Zaporozhia region, whose, whose armies were supposed to break through to the Sea of Azov and to the Black Sea. So General Tarnovsky was supposed supposedly was going to be sacked. Another general was going to be sacked who was in charge of control, you know, watching, monitoring the border uh, between Ukraine and Russia in the north, very sensitive political role. And there were other reports also that um, General Zaluzhny was under investigation. That the chief medical officer of the ukrainian military who's a woman by the way and also has general general rank that she was going to be sacked as well and strana which is one of the most reliable ukrainian uh, military well political military publications reported this and as i said so met, so did several parliamentarians then we got reports from the ukrainian defense ministry saying this was not true but they only said that after several hours had passed. And one gets the sort of sense overall that there is a mounting political crisis in Kiev. I, I, I'm guessing, this is a guess now, but the most plausible guess is that there, were, there was a plan to sack generals, presumably in order to weaken and isolate Zelensky. Who, it seems to me that his relationship with Zelensky has completely broken down but that um, perhaps Zaluzhny or someone else in the military pushed back and said that they weren't going to accept these resignations, and um, Zelensky, perhaps in a weakened position, had to pull back and at least delay announcing them. And all of this is happening um, with the Russians stirring the pot, Uh, Nikolai Petrushev, Putin's um, national security advisor, the secretary of the Russian Security Council. He said that there are people in the wings in Kiev who are preparing, waiting to take over. And, well, as I said, some people think that the Russians might be playing a role in all of this. I don't myself. I think this is just Petrushev. as I said, stirring the pot and being mischievous. And at the same time, we're also getting reports that William Burns, the CIA director is flying to is flying to Kiev tomorrow and of course there's again huge amounts of speculation we don't know for a fact that he's going by the way but there's huge amounts of speculation that if he does indeed go what is his role in all of this one view is that he's going to play an active part in these intrigues whose ultimate end point is Zelensky's own resignation The idea being, you know, you leverage Zelensky out, you put Zeluzhny in and make him president, and Zeluzhny then starts negotiations of some kind with the Russians. That's one view. The other view, um, which I more favour, actually, is that Burns is going to Kiev to try to calm the situation, to try to stabilise it, because we have a gathering catastrophe... On the front lines. I mean, reports are now pouring in of Ukrainian troops in really severe difficulty. The Ukrainian Air Force has been, as far as I can tell, largely uh, blown out of the skies. And I would have thought that any sensible, rational government in Washington would say to itself, this is not the moment to carry out those kind of, um, you know, events, those kind of coups or uprisings in Kiev, you want stability there, because there's a real risk that instability in Kiev will further result in more instability and demoralisation and potentially even collapse on the front lines. So I think that is where um, what what the purpose of sending burns there is in in order to put plaster on what I suspect is a festering sauna. So what is the situation on the front lines? Well, it's getting worse every day. And I have to say, uh, things are moving in some ways, in Avdevka at least, actually faster than I'd expected. I mean, you know, Avdevka is a city of a town of about 30,000 people before the war. So it's not a small place. It's got big industrial facilities. It's been very, very heavily fortified. The Ukrainians have made it one of their major... Defense positions in the Ukraine, in in their defense system. And it was also supposed to be um, the position from which, in the event that there had been a Ukrainian offensive to recapture Donetsk city, the offensive would have been launched from Avdevka. So it's a key place. And I expected personally that this would take a a very long time to play out the the Battle of Avdevka would take a very long time to play out. What I get the impression is, is that on the contrary, the Russians are making faster progress, closing the ring around Avdevka than I had expected. This is despite all the minefields, all the fortifications, all the brigades that Ukraine is pulling, every conceivable point in the front lines and rushing to Avdevka to hold the positions there. The Ukrainians have been mounting counterattacks, they've been pulling every stop to try to slow or, or stop the Russian offensive around Avdevka. And I get the sense that it's not working and that the Russians are moving faster, perhaps even than they expected, that they're, they're now busy capturing this village to the west, of Avdevka in the northwest of Avdevka. They've you know gradually tightening their pincers around Avdevka. They've advanced into an industrial zone to the south of Avdevka. I'm not going to give a time estimate for how quickly that battle uh, will end, but it, it's progressing, I think, surprisingly fast. And the news everywhere else is equally bad. So uh, in Bakhmut, Ukraine is also on the back foot. Now, the Russians are pushing hard around Bakhmut. Overnight, there was reports of more advances by the Russians. All the territory that Ukraine regained over the course of the summer is apparently being steadily lost. There is apparently another big crisis for the Ukrainian troops further north in the Kupiansk area, where the Russians have played a long game. They've let again the Ukrainians send reinforcements there, which it seems is increasing the rates of attrition. Even in Kherson region, where the Ukrainians were apparently making, or you know, they'd at least established that bridgehead in Klinky on the deeper river it seems they're now suffering increasingly heavy losses things are not going well for them there they're not able to break through there are reports that ukrainian soldiers are now refusing to fight there's been two videos one by a military unit in avdevka one by a military unit in Kupiansk, saying that they are you know exhausted that they are demoralized that they're starting to question their orders. These are actual soldiers that are starting to do this. And on top of everything else, there's been this systematic demolition of Ukraine's air force. Um, Something happened over the course of October and early November. There was a sudden change in the technological balance. And um, dozens of Ukrainian fighter jets were shot out of the skies for no Russian losses at all. So the Russians are establishing aerial dominance. So one gets the situa- this, the impression of the front lines crumbling, coming under enormous pressure, and with a developing crisis in Avdevka, which the Ukrainians can't reverse. And the Ukrainians, by their own admission, are now short of men. They're short of machines. They're short of uh, tanks and uh, guns. Uh, the EU's promises of supplying ammunition have not been fulfilled, which is unsurprising. There is, as you correctly said at the start of the programme, a political battle underway in the United States about whether to go on funding this bottomless pit, which is the, you know, the war in Ukraine. And that might be coming to an end also. I get the sense that Republican opposition is actually growing to the idea of further funding for Ukraine. And Zelensky is apparently trying to make desperate calls to Donald Trump, of all people, to try to get him to persuade the Republicans to shift their ground on this. Apparently, he's not responding. And, you know, one gets the sense overall, a military situation, which it's not yet, we're not yet talking about a breakdown, and it's not, um, you know, there, it's not happened yet, but it's becoming more fragile. And um, that is what is feeding into this crisis in Kiev, because with the military situation, Starting to break down. There's clearly a game of recriminations going on between the Ukrainian military and the Ukrainian political leadership between Zelensky and Zeluzny as to who's to blame for this whole mess. And at the same time, there's clearly no agreement at all about how to go forward.
0: Yeah, but the uh, the European Union, they're saying that they're going to, to give more money to Ukraine. Um, Germany actually said they're going to double. The amount of military aid to Ukraine from four billion to eight billion, uh, Borrell said uh, yesterday that that yes, they haven't been able to meet the ammunition needs of Ukraine, but he's confident that they'll be able to to ramp up production and get the ammunition to to Ukraine that it needs. Um, what's wh- where's the disconnect? <laughs> Because what the European you? Union is is the European Union is making it seem like they're they're in it for for the long haul I mean even even Schultz gave an interview the other day and he said that we're behind Ukraine 100 percent and we're gonna we're gonna expand our support to to Ukraine I mean Germany is taking a position where where they're going all in for uh for this conflict instead of perhaps Scaling it back and maybe opening up negotiations with Russia, Germany's really going in hard. With indeed, so, Ukraine now. Indeed, so so it is, and of course the EU Commission
1: is now, as we know, preparing accession talks in order to include, you know, to bring Ukraine into the European Union. I mean, at the moment, I have and, to. And
0: more this- talks about, Enmore talks, and more talks. I'm going to cut you off real quick because Edmore talks about Ukraine joining NATO.
1: All all that, you know, from Rasmussen as well. I mean, it all looks increasingly delusional and increasingly surreal, but it's not surprising. It's the kind of thing that tends to happen when a crisis starts to come together like this and people who are already politically deeply inadequate and who've committed their entire political futures and their entire political careers and who have done enormous probably irreparable damage to their own countries start to see that the whole situation is, um, you know, falling apart around them. Their instinct in that kind of crisis is not to rethink what they've done, because if they start doing that, then they open themselves up to criticism it is to double down and that's exactly what they're doing so they're saying you know all is well in ukraine situation is proceeding from strength to strength well you know maybe this offensive that we got the ukrainians to launch in the summer maybe it didn't turn out quite as well as we hoped but you know we remain confident overall that everything eventually will come right And um, all we need to do is to give them more money still, more weapons. You know, Ukraine's energy system is in a terrible shape, so we must give more money to sort out the energy system. Nobody explains what happened to all that money Ukraine got (laughs) last year to sort out the energy system after the winter. I mean, nobody, of course, asks these sort of questions about, you know, maybe it ended up, instead of sorting out the energy system in Bank accounts in the Cayman Islands. <laughs> Those are not questions you get to get from these, you know, these people, or no, and certainly no answers you're going to get from these people. So you know that is what happens. That is what happens when a project like this starts starts to fall apart. And again, you see the difference. And I, I have to say this in levels of agency between the United States and Europe. In the United States, at all times, there was more skepticism about Project Ukraine. There were many more critics. There was more debate about it. There were votes. People were vo- voted against things like this, you know, support for Ukraine in Congress. There was much more discussion in the media. And now that it's all falling apart, that means that there is a, an actual debate, even if it is a very strange debate, but there is an actual debate going on about this in the United States. In Europe, where they no longer have political agency, where um, talking about matters of this kind um, is simply impossible, where everybody rushed enthusiastically to impose sanctions that have been utterly devastating to the European economy. Debate is not allowed, and therefore, since debate is not allowed, the machine continues, as before. It continues to do the same as it has been doing over the last year. The reality is the the EU has had a year and a half to sort out its support for Ukraine. They haven't been
0: able to do it in a year and a half. They're not going to do it now okay, so uh there was a document that uh that was published the other day a report by uh ex ex nato and u n officials and uh they talk about the the possibility in the first months of the special military operation to have uh to have had uh, a ceasefire and uh and eventually a resolution to to the crisis in ukraine. And um, that document came to the conclusion that not only did the United States and the UK uh, Boris Johnson's infamous trip now to Kiev, not only were they behind the uh, the sabotage of um, a peace in uh, in Ukraine. This is we're talking about like the first couple of weeks. There could have been a peace. It was it was hammered out. It was. It was agreed on we had the frameworks to open up negotiations um not only was the u s and the u k behind the sabotaging this effort, but also germany and i think I think Germany has gotten off easy <laughs> up until today with regards to uh to derailing what could have been um an end to to this horrible uh, conflict uh, obviously Boris Johnson has taken the the, the brunt of the of the blame, blame given that he was the the person that traveled to Kiev and, and delivered the the ultimatum the terms to to Zelensky and of course the US everyone understands that when you're talking about the UK you have the US uh, behind uh, behind Boris Johnson and the UK as well but Germany Germany played a very big role in making sure that there was going to be no uh, ceasefire, armistice or peace agreement in the first couple of weeks of this conflict which has since led to to hundreds of thousands of uh, of casualties and the the destruction of uh, of Ukraine. We see it playing out, uh, Ukraine is is being destroyed. Uh the there there's a lot of fault that uh that should be directed at Germany as well, Olaf Scholz.
1: Absolutely. Now, can I just say something? You're absolutely correct. This is an incredibly important report. It's been, I, I gather, it's received a certain amount of attention in Germany itself. Of course, if you're talking about the media here in Britain, they've not even mentioned it. But it is to anybody who wants to understand why we are where we are and what the cause of the war was, and who wanted the war, then in my opinion, this report is essential reading. And the people who put it together are very, very serious people indeed. One is Michael Schulenberg, who is a um, diplomat, a very senior German diplomat, former Deputy UN Secretary General. He's held all kinds of positions. He's um, a person with a an extraordinary record behind him, and from a family, by the way, a f- very famous diplomatic family. And the other was Har- another one was Harald Kujat, who was a German general, and he was, of course, Germany's senior general, and he was for a time, I believe, the senior general within NATO itself. So we're talking about, you know, very experienced people, and they've looked at all of this. And what they've come up, what they've produced, what they've provided us with, is some absolutely fascinating and really extremely disturbing um, information. So you're absolutely right. There were negotiations going on in February and March. We covered them at the time. And those negotiations, somewhat to our uh, surprise at the time and later, actually were very successful. The Ukrainians and the Russians found a lot of common ground. Basically, they both agreed that NATO membership for Ukraine was impossible. And all the other pieces, once that point had been reached, all the other pieces fell into place. And it turns out that there were lots of people mediating and helping along with the process. There was the Prime Minister of Israel at that time, Naftali Bennett. There was President Lukashenko of Belarus. There was President Erdogan of Turkey. There was Roman Abramovich, the businessman. And uh, there was also the former German Chancellor, uh, um, um, Gerhard Schroeder. They were all involved. And they all came very close to an agreement and the heads of agreement were initialed in Istanbul between the delegations on the 29th of March. Now, what happened was that in the very first weeks of the war, right after the war began, the Germans, the French, the Americans and the British appeared to support negotiations between Ukraine and Russia. And then, to their horror they realised that those negotiations were going to result in an end to the war and a potential, a peaceful outcome to the crisis. So what then happened was that they brought together, they, hurried, they rushed together, they called together a meeting Of a NATO summit meeting on the 24th of March. This is five days before the heads of agreement were initialed. Biden, who doesn't travel very much, flew in all the way from the United States. He met with all of these people, with Schultz, Macron, Johnson, Draghi, and they all then said, this is unacceptable. We don't like this at all. They started to impose unacceptable conditions for ukraine to move forward with the peace and then of course as we know johnson who clearly was appointed the person to carry, you know to convey the bad news first he telephoned zelensky and then he traveled to kiev and he made sure that the entire peace agreement was demolished and this timeline that we've now provide been provided also by the way confirms something else which of course we've always known But those events, those alleged atrocities in that northern suburb of Kiev had nothing to do with the collapse of the negotiations. The decision to sabotage the negotiations was made before that happened. Now, that opens the question of why did all of these countries, the United States, Britain... Germany, as you rightly say as well, the Germans were also horrified that the negotiations were about to succeed. Macron and Draghi going along with the crowd, why did they all decide at that last moment, you know, uh, know, that they would sabotage talks, that they would prevent peace being agreed? Well, I think the straightforward answer, the answer is very simple, and it's actually... There, in some of the things that people were saying at the time, Biden said in a speech in Warsaw, Johnson said when he visited Kiev, which is that they wanted regime change. They wanted to use the war to engineer regime change in Moscow. That was why the war happened in the first place. That is why they wanted the war prolonged. They still thought at this time, but they were sure at this time, we're talking about March 2022, that the sanctions would have their effect, the military pressure on the Russians would also have their, its effect. They all believed that all they needed to do was to keep the pressure on the Russians a little longer and they were going to get their regime changed. So they did not want a peace that would deprive them of that war and of their regime change operation in Moscow. This document makes it absolutely clear to my mind who wanted peace and who wanted war. The West wanted the war at that time. Certainly the Russians and the Ukrainians also wanted peace. It was the West that was driving this crisis all along and which has brought us to the situation in which we're in today.
0: The document also blows apart the, the stupidity of that narrative of uh, the siege of Kiev as well, which uh, Mili and, and Kirby and all of these guys pushed out that Ukraine fought bravely in the opening days of, uh, of Russia's invasion to drive the Russians out of, uh, out of Kiev. And the document clearly states that Putin removed his forces from Kiev and the surrounding areas as a goodwill gesture. In order to get closer to uh, initialing these documents and getting to a peace within the first three to four weeks of, uh, of the special military operation, the document also makes it clear that, uh, that even Zelensky uh, preferred a peace. I mean Absolutely. You know if, if Putin's plan was to was to shock let's say shock Ukraine into, into agreeing. To drop their whole uh, their whole NATO um, play, getting into NATO, it, it worked because Zelensky dropped the idea of of getting into NATO, and Absolutely. he came around to to seeing things the way the way Putin wanted Zelensky to see things, which is no NATO, no military. Uh, there would be uh, countries that would guarantee Ukraine security, including Russia. And uh, they wouldn't even be allowed to have militaries um, training or having exercises in Ukraine unless they got the permission of the countries that were guaranteeing the uh, the security of of Ukraine. So, I mean, you know, P- Putin's gamble actually worked. Yes. If uh-huh. not for Germany, the United States, UK, and as you said. France and Macron and Draghi just going along as they always do. They go any any which way the the, the wind blows. But um, the, the the real you know the real warmongers in all of this the United States, the UK, and Germany. Uh, I, I wonder. I, I want your comments on on what I just well, said, the, and then I want you to you're... also answer also answer one more question, which is legally: yeah. okay? Does this document have any? legal weight for Russia or for the UN Security Council or anything like that? Yes. Well,
1: let's discuss this because you made some very important points. Can I just add to that list of warmongers that you're talking about, Jens Stoltenberg and the NATO bureaucracy, who were clearly playing an important role as well. And you can see that also in this particular document. You're absolutely right. Now, what happened was, let's deal firstly with the the siege of Kiev and all that, and the great Ukrainian military victory in Kiev. You're absolutely correct. Uh, we can reconstruct this a little. Now, this I'm getting a little beyond what this document itself says, but I understand that over the course of the negotiations, the um, Ukrainians asked the Russians to pull their troops back from Kiev. Um, then what happened was that Zelensky started to come under severe pressure from the Western powers, from the, well, from the Americans, the British, and the Germans, and, of course, NATO, to um, drop this peace process, he initially resisted. And he gave a press conference, an interview to Russian journalists, on the 27th of um, March, in which he again confirmed that Ukraine would not be joining NATO and that the peace was going to, you know, you know, Proceed. This is despite the fact that at this point, the Western powers had already made it clear that they were opposed to these peace discussions. So on the following day, 28th of March, after Zelensky gave this press conference, Putin took the decision to pull the troops back from Kiev as a goodwill gesture. And on the 29th of March, the document was signed the the draft agreement was signed so you are absolutely correct this explodes the myths of the great ukrainian military victory around kiev it was a goodwill gesture by the russians requested by the ukrainians agreed to by putin when it looked for a time as if zelensky was going to resist the pressure the western powers put him under to pull out of this um of this deal that was by this point emerging what then happened is of course boris johnson who acted as the enforcer came to well phoned zelensky and then came to, to kiev and you know said that the war must go on and this peace agreement mustn't uh, proceed and basically made sure that peace didn't happen and of course we also had the big media campaign around the events in that northern suburb, which, by the way, as I'm sure you've noticed, no one ever talks about anymore. So uh, all of that happened basically in order to sabotage peace. And you're absolutely correct. That, the whole myth of the Ukrainian victory in Ki- around Kiev, which has been you know, such a foundational story, in perpetuating the war ever since then. It's just that, it's been exposed now as a complete and total myth, right from the first moment. Now, you know, this is a terrible document. It, it shows, uh, it, to my mind, it confirms that an agreement had been reached before the war began, well before the war began, by the Western powers. They wanted their war. They were creating the crisis. They manufactured the crisis that would lead to the war. They wanted um, a war so that they could impose their massive sanctions against the Russians. It's clear that Scholz and the German governments, the Habeck and Baerbock, were fully into the game. If you remember, Scholz and Baerbock... And by the way, Macron visited Moscow in the days leading up to the war. It's now absolutely clear to me that they were trying to uh, pull the wool over the Russians' eyes about what was going to happen. Um, And they were saying things that they didn't believe. And, um, you know, they engineered their war in order to get regime change in Moscow. That was the neocon project all along and they were not going to be deprived of it. And an essential part of that Neocom project was Ukrainian entry into NATO. Because bear in mind what this also demonstrates is as you absolutely rightly say, the Russians and the Ukrainians were able to come to agreements. Zelensky was prepared to come to agreement. He was prepared to drop the idea of NATO membership for Ukraine. And clearly, That was unacceptable to the Western powers. So, which clearly means that at that time, they emphatically did intend, eventually, to bring Ukraine into NATO. So when Macron, and especially Schultz, were going to Moscow and said that Ukraine's entry into NATO is not on the agenda, they were lying. They were lying to the Russians, lying to their face. So, this is where we are today. Um, Schultz's role. Legally. Legally. Let's talk about this. Now, if. Go ahead, Schultz's role. Schultz's role. Schultz, Schultz's role in all of this was absolutely crucial. And I think it does beg a lot of questions about how German politics. Uh, um, evolved in the months before the, um, um, you know, the start of the war. Because clearly, um, at some point, he participated fully in the Neocon um, regime change project in Moscow. He became a full accessory to it, a full conspirator, if you like, behind it, along obviously with Baerbock and Habeck. And um, this, was, this must have happened long before the war started. So, again, all of his supposed objections to all of these sanctions that we were hearing about before the war started, you know, that he was supposedly against, uh, um, you know, um, closing down Nord Stream. He was supposedly inten- uh, resisting Russia's disconnection from SWIFT. All of that clearly, well so it seems to me, must have been a lie. And he was obviously deceiving people in Germany, just as he was deceiving, trying to deceive the Russians. So he, he's played an extraordinary double game. And going back to the point you were making earlier in the programme about why is he doubling down now? Why is he increasing the amount of money that he wants to send to Germany and to, to Ukraine and ramping up weapons and things of this kind. It's because, of course, he doesn't want his own own personal role in this crisis to be properly examined and exposed. And this is where we come to the legal issue. Because, of course, if ever there is a proper investigation, if there's pro- probably a you know, full inquiry in Germany about this, Hmm? about the origins of the war, which conceivably there might be. I mean, Germany has suffered massive economic damage. Um, 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 We we had a meeting with a member of the... Well, uh, an interview with uh, uh, a member of the uh, uh, IFD, um, Glenn Deeson and I, Maximilian uh, Kra. Um, on the Duran, in which he discusses the economic damage that Germany has suffered as a result of all of this. If there is a proper investigation, there's a proper inquiry, then, of course, this report immediately becomes both evidence in itself, because the timeline is there. Um, Schultz's statements are all there. And, of course, it also opens up further lines of inquiry as to the precise role he has played and now i'm not going to go further i'm not going to start talking about you know potential prosecutions because i'm you know not able to discuss that because i don't have all of the knowledge but it does seem to me that you know there is at least some reason based on this document to think that one might come, you know prosecutions might come. I mean you know he, he said a lot of things that weren't true. He prolonged a war that was against Germany's interests and Europe's interests, and catastrophically against Ukraine's interests. He seems to have been a, it seems to have been an instigator of that war, at least to a certain degree, perhaps to a great degree. And, you know, I I would have thought that at the very least, based on what this report says, he has questions to answer. Now, that, of course, relates to Schultz. It relates even more to Boris Johnson, to his foreign minister, Liz Truss, to the defence secretary, Ben Wallace, potentially to the Americans, to others too. But, of course, I don't seriously expect that any investigations like that will ever be launched. The most that might happen in Britain is that you might get a House of Commons inquiry someday in the far future, which will tell us about the mistakes and errors that were made over the course of this, and will gently wrap some people over their, uh, you know, on their wrists and say, you know, we didn't do very right. This is what happened after the Iraq War with Blair. It's what happened. Uh, um, after the Libyan war with Cameron, um, that's all I suspect that we will ever conceivably see happen to Johnson and Truss and the
0: others. Let's uh, let's not also forget uh, the EU's role in this. Uh, it, we know as a fact that Ursula was in uh, in DC uh, a month or two before the the SMO started, actually three months before the SMO started around November 2020, 2021, November, December. And she was actually holding meetings with the Biden White House. And they were talking about possible sanctions that they would place on Russia in the event that a conflict were to start in Ukraine. So they were laying out the the sanctions roadmap three months before the SMO even started. So obviously the EU, Ursula, was, was in on this as well. And uh, two more things to, to wrap up the video. What if, what if Olaf Schultz and the Greens um, knew that that something was going to happen to the Nord Stream pipeline? Well, what if they were okay well, with it? <laughs> you know, sometimes you know, so, sometimes in, in in green ideology, the ends justify the means. You know, so, you know, what if they were, they were aware that something could happen to to the North Street pipelines, because uh, the the pressure that they were receiving from the business community must have been uh, uncomfortable, uncomfortable for them. Mm. So that's just a, just a thought, just a thought there. And, uh, And the final thought, and we'll wrap up the video for you to comment on, is Ukraine, if it's exists as a state in the future. And Zelensky or maybe people in and around Zelensky who who managed to survive this, this, uh, this catastrophe, what they should do is they should bring a legal case against uh, Germany, the UK, and the United States at a very minimum against Germany and perhaps France. I don't know, just a thought. Well, absolutely. And it might,
1: it, I mean, that is not impossible. It might conceivably one day happen. So, I mean, you know, let, let's not discuss that. But let's just deal with Nord Stream, because this is an interesting thing, because uh, you're absolutely right. If uh, Scholz, Harbeck, and the others, and of course Harbeck is Germany's economics minister, so he's particularly close. He's to the business community or supposed to be he's supposed to be listening a lot to what these people are saying whether he does of course is another matter but anyway um if these people had some foreknowledge of what happened which we don't it must be said now no but if they did if they did then of course they are um potentially accessories and as potential accessories i suspect that in that case they would be subject to sanctions under German law, i mean to legal sanctions under german law i don't want to go into too much of a discussion about this at the moment because um you know we just don't have enough evidence to really speculate further, but I um, mean if they had foreknowledge of what was going to happen and let it happen and weren't perhaps sorry that it did happen then, as I said, there would certainly be legal consequences. I mean, potentially in Germany itself. This is putting aside, you know, wider uh, legal, international legal implications, which would also exist, by the way. Now, I'm not going to say more about that, apart from one thing, which is that, you know, we see the situation in Ukraine starting to implode. And surprise, surprise, we now have all of these very interesting uh, accounts, about how it was all organised by, was it the six guys and the boats, all operated, you know, administered, managed by this uh, 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 Ukrainian colonel who is now conveniently in prison. I'm not going to say any more. I think you did a very good video about this um, on your channel, so I'm not really going to... uh, 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 cover that in more detail. I would just urge people to go to Alex's channel now and look up that video and see how he takes that, uh, 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 the the humorous way in which he takes that all apart. But the question is, why is that story coming up now? Well, it could be because this attempts to implicate Zeluzny in this affair. <laughs> um, but, of course, it might also be because some people are beginning to get worried that um, with Project Ukraine falling apart, more questions about what happened with Nord Stream 2 might start to be asked by more and more people. So they want to get their alternative version um, out there first. So that's, that's all I'm going to say about this. I mean, legal implications do exist in this. And you're absolutely right. Ukraine might have claims. Ukraine might have claims. Russia, potentially might have claims, though again, this would be a a shocking idea, I suspect, for many people. But perhaps more meaningfully, people in uh, Germany potentially could have claims, business people, those kind of people. And last but not least, what you said about the EU and about the role of Ursula von der Leyen in this affair is absolutely right. I mean, you know, she was... Also
0: fully involved, she's in it up to her ears. Yeah. Anyway, I mean, I, I just find it so interesting that that you had this this huge incident with Nord Stream. Schultz was standing right next to Biden when Biden said that they'll take care of Nord Stream if they need to. Obviously, there obviously there's coordination. Given this report, there there was a lot of coordination. In the early days of this conflict and and before the conflict between the United States, Germany, uh, the European Union, the UK, France, obviously they were coordinating a whole bunch of things. Yeah. Well, coordination is a very,
1: very, um, shall we say, mild word (laughs) to describe what was going on. If it was coordination that led to uh, legally actionable acts, then of course that coordination might start to look more like a conspiracy. But let us not go there. Let us not go there yet. Because, as I said, it's important not to get ahead of ourselves. The point is, this report in itself is absolutely crucial. It shows how a chance for peace in March last year was thrown away. As you absolutely rightly said in your previous comments, it also showed how Putin's calculations, what Putin's actual calculations at the start were, That he was trying to shock the Ukrainians into agreeing a peace and to demolish their idea that, you know, this is peace for them, led uh, uh, could be found through Europe. It shows that um, he did have Ukrainian interlocutors, that the Ukrainians themselves understood that at the time. And we saw that the Western powers, having got their war, having started their sanctions, having decided on regime change in Moscow, were not going to give peace a chance. They were going to see that war continue, and they were intending to escalate it. Um, And they still had hopes at that time that they would achieve regime change. All of that, I think, is now factually established. It is there in this report. The report also contains um, statements by Western officials, especially, by the way, Boris Johnson, which tells us, um, which shows clearly what he was thinking and what the others were, were thinking. And it is a critically important document. And one would like to believe, and one hopes, that when this crisis in Ukraine is over and people there start to ask questions about why the lives of their loved ones were sacrificed in the way that they were, that they would go to this report and other reports like it and start asking the right questions of the right people and start to take it further. And I think that if they did, we would probably find some very revealing answers which we need to know also in the
0: West. All right, we will leave it there. TheDuran.locals.com. We are on Rumble, Odyssey, BitChute, Rockfin, Telegram, and Twitter X. And go to the Duran shop, 20% off. Use the code TheDuran20. Take care.